By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Hello everyone and welcome to Emerging Markets Decoded. I'm Natasha Britton Fukui from the research group at Moody's. I'm guest hosting for a special episode of the podcast. Our topic for today is the 2023 United Nations Climate Change Conference, better known as COP28, which kicks off in Dubai on the 30th of November. And this year's summit really marks a critical moment for climate negotiations given that it comes as a midway point between the signing of the Paris Agreement and the 2030 milestone for emissions cuts. A range of topics are going to be on the table that could ultimately have very material credit consequences for issuers in emerging markets. So to talk through the range of topics that we're going to be watching at the summit, I'm joined by Rebecca Karnovitz, who's Vice President Senior Credit Officer for ESG Research and Outreach, and Matt Kuchak, who's Vice President Sustainable Finance, both at Moody's Investors Service. So welcome to you both, and thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Natasha. Pleasure to be here. Rebecca, perhaps I could start by asking you to give us a bird's eye view on this. What is COP, and why is it relevant for credit markets? So COP is the annual UN climate conference where governments from around the world get together to agree on climate action. If you recall at COP21 in 2015, you had 196 countries come together to adopt the Paris Agreement, thereby committing to significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions with the goal of limiting global warming to two degrees Celsius by the end of the century, but really striving for one and a half degrees to hopefully avoid the worst effects of climate change. And so what goes on a COP matters for credit because what gets decided there can shape government climate policies globally. And that, in turn, can have an impact on climate-related credit risks for rated issuers. When we look uh, across our universe of uh, rated issuers and look at the credit materiality of environmental risks, we identify 16 sectors with nearly $5 trillion in rated debt as being highly exposed to carbon transition risk, and 14 sectors accounting for a little over $6 trillion in rated debt as being highly exposed to physical climate risk. So if countries agree to accelerate policies to reduce emissions, that could increase carbon transition risks for highly exposed sectors, such as oil and gas or electric utilities. If countries decide to ramp up efforts to increase resilience to extreme weather events, that could help address the impact of physical climate risks. But of course, it all depends on what actually gets implemented on the back of announcements. Thank you. That's very helpful. So these are very clearly important credit issues from a global perspective. But why specifically does the conference matter for emerging markets? So the conference matters for uh, emerging markets and emerging market credit because emerging markets tend to generally be uh, more exposed to the adverse effects of climate change than advanced economies. Um, among our rated universe of, of EM sovereigns and regional lo- 
local governments, uh, we assess that over 40 percent uh, of those issuers have high credit exposure to physical climate risk. And that's compared to less than 1% of advanced economy governments. And that's for a number of reasons. It's because uh, to start off with, EMs tend to be just more exposed to climate hazards. Um, their economies tend to be more dependent on sectors such as agriculture and, and tourism that can be uh, affected by, by weather and extreme weather events. And that's also because those issuers tend to have uh, less capacity to respond. So uh, fewer financial resources and, and weaker social safety nets that can really help mitigate uh, the social and, and economic impacts of extreme weather. So in that context, we think that action and adaptation is increasingly going to become a credit differentiating factor among the most climate vulnerable countries. And so bringing it back to COP, any progress that we see made at the conference that could help these economies uh, adapt uh, and build resilience, uh, that could help reduce the, the socioeconomic, the financial impact of physical climate risks, and further down the line, potentially limit impact on credit quality. Beyond physical climate risks, we think EMs also face steep challenges in trying to balance growth objectives with decarbonization goals. They face considerable challenges in mobilizing the financing that they need to transition and also the, the financing that they need to adapt to a changing environment. So these topics of transition, adaptation, climate finance, they're all the topics that are really at the heart of what goes on in, at COP and why COP ultimately matters for, for emerging markets. You've, you've mentioned a range of the climate-related challenges that emerging markets face. Related to that, could you tell us a bit about what you're going to be watching for specifically at this year's COP? So on the mitigation side, we're going to be watching whether countries make new commitments to further reduce emissions and accelerate implementation of existing pledges. Uh, this year marks the conclusion of the first global stock take, which is a sort of report card on progress made since the Paris Agreement. And progress has been made, but this report card is going to show that current policies and current pledges are just still not aligned uh, with Paris Agreement goals. So there's going to be a lot of pressure on countries to ramp up action, both in terms of um, ramping up commitments, but also implementation of commitments. Other focal points are going to be whether countries can reach an agreement around fossil fuels, so either the phase down or the phasing out of fossil fuels. This is something that was discussed uh, last year, um, but an agreement eluded parties. And then food and agriculture will also be in focus, um, given the contribution of that sector to carbon emissions and deforestation globally but also given the need to strengthen food security, particularly in some emerging markets. And our research shows that low-rated frontier markets across Africa and the Middle East, um, as well as parts of South Asia, are most vulnerable to future food security crises. And how about on the adaptation side? I think there are plenty of challenges there for emerging markets as well. Yeah, so there's going to be a lot of focus on how to implement, put in place this loss and damage fund um, that was agreed to and, and announced at last year's COP. So the loss and damage fund um, is meant to 
help the most climate vulnerable countries respond uh, to the effects of climate change. But the extent to which this fund is going to be able to mitigate um, the credit impact of rising sea levels and extreme weather events on the most climate vulnerable countries, that's really going to depend on how this fund is implemented. And so this is something that, that we'll be watching. And then beyond adaptation on, on the climate finance side, really how to mobilize climate financing um, in emerging markets has really been a, a perennial issue. But it's one that's really taken center stage in in recent uh, in recent conferences, and um, there are various initiatives that are underway to help address um, that climate financing that climate financing gap and and build what the the COP presidency, which is held by the United Arab Emirates this year, uh, refers to as a new financial architecture. And and I know you're you're going to discuss this in a little bit more detail with with Matt. And when we talk about transitioning to a low carbon economy, and this obviously presents big challenges globally, but what specific hurdles does it present for emerging markets? So many emerging market countries have set decarbonization targets, but they face challenges or specific challenges in balancing those carbon transition goals with economic growth and social objectives. So if you think about it, historically, countries that have reached peak emissions, such as the U.S., they, they've usually done so well after reaching high income level status and universal access to electricity. So meanwhile, emerging markets need to manage rapid urbanization. They need to manage growth and energy demand, all while trying to meet these carbon transition objectives. They also need to ensure that the communities that may be negatively affected by carbon transition are not left behind. So, you know, think coal mining communities that can be uh, affected by the closure of a coal mine. Uh, of course, that's true in advanced economies, too. But again, advanced economies tend to have uh, more robust uh, social safety nets that can really help mitigate the, the social and, and economic impact of, of transition on unaffected communities. And so generally, we think that EM sovereigns that have stronger governance, stronger financial buffers, more robust social safety nets, um, they're the ones that may be more likely uh, to, to achieve what we call, quote unquote, a just transition. So a transition uh, that does not exacerbate social inequities, and in fact, that can maximize the social and economic benefits of transition. Could you expand a bit on the nature of some of those benefits? Sure. I mean, energy transition can bring uh, tremendous economic and social opportunities. Um, investments in clean energy can create jobs. It can reduce energy costs. It can reduce healthcare costs and premature deaths. Um, and there are opportunities for emerging markets to, to really become integrated in the, the global value chain for green tech and, and manufacturing. Uh, but what we've seen in recent years is Clean energy investments have really been concentrated um, in advanced economies and, and in China, uh, thanks to lower cost of capital and, and policy support. Uh, according to, to a recent publication by the International Energy Agency, uh, capital costs for renewables-based projects are twice as high in emerging markets as they are in advanced economies. And that's clearly uh, an, an obstacle to, to ramping up uh, clean energy investment. 
We've talked a lot about what the public sector is doing so far, but how about the private sector? What's its role at COP28? Yeah, that's a good question. So the private sector is present at COP and the private sector plays an important role in driving decarbonization through both corporate strategy and through the financing of climate action. And what we've seen in recent years is a growing number of companies, including financial institutions, make net zero commitments. But implementation is challenging, and that's particularly true for some of the more carbon-intensive sectors. We actually recently took a look at how rated companies and um, some of the more uh, highly exposed uh, sectors to carbon transition are, are managing transition. And we find that there's really great variation between and within industries. So on one hand, we have utilities, which are or electric utilities, which are best positioned because um, of an acceleration in the adoption of renewable power generation. Uh, that's been on the back of declining costs and supportive policy. On the other hand, we think the oil and gas sector faced the most challenges given current business models and current investment strategies. And then we see we have sectors like shipping and steel for which the time frame and the cost for scale solution still remains uh, quite uh, uncertain. Could you give some examples of the private sector initiatives that have been coming out of COP? Yeah, so one example of an initiative that we've seen uh, come out of COP is in recent years is the First Movers Coalition. That was launched at Glasgow in 2021. The First Movers Coalition is a coalition of companies committed to helping accelerate transition in sectors where low-carbon technologies are not yet available at scale. Last year, the coalition announced $12 billion in purchase commitments by 2030 to help create early markets for low-carbon technologies in sectors such as cement and steel. Uh, and I'm sure that this year we'll see some, some similar announcements. Uh, another initiative this year, the presidency, uh, the COP presidency is launching a net zero commitment charter to mobilize corporate net zero commitments and, and transition plans and really encourage corporates um, to develop really credible transition plans um, with, with interim targets. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out and what comes out uh, of this charter. Uh, because we know it's it's currently hard to assess uh, credibility of corporate transition plans. And actually, uh, we at, at Moody's Investor Service, we recently launched a, a framework to help investors assess both the ambition and the implementation strength of, of corporate transition plans. Thank you, Rebecca. Matt, let me turn to you now to dig into some of those points in a bit more detail. Rebecca mentioned that a key focus of COP is going to be the need to mobilise climate finance to support both decarbonisation and adaptation efforts. Are you able to put a value on the climate finance gap for emerging markets? Well, thanks very much, Natasha. It's great to be here today. Uh, yeah, Climate financing needs, including both mitigation and adaptation investments, are quite substantial in emerging market countries, with investment needs expected to rise in coming years. According to research from the independent high-level expert group on climate finance, historical underinvestment in climate finance has contributed to the need for around $1 trillion per year in external finance by 2030 for emerging markets and developing countries other than China. 
and financing levels to date trail well behind this one trillion figure. An additional hurdle for these countries is that they typically have weaker access to financing from international capital markets and often face challenges related to higher debt levels and higher interest rates. Thank you. And Rebecca referred earlier to some of the initiatives that are in train to mobilise private finance. Could you give us a sense of some of those? And is there anything specific that you're expecting to come out of COP? Yeah, given the financing challenges that, that many emerging markets face, given sovereign fiscal constraints, private capital will be a key to help these countries meet their climate finance goals. Uh, although there remains significant room for growth in, in such initiatives, we are gradually seeing innovation around climate finance for emerging market countries. Uh, one area is blended finance, which can help mobilize private sources of finance alongside funding from multilateral development banks. And although still relatively small in number, these blended finance transactions have the potential to improve the risk return profile of projects through financial structures, including guarantees and credit enhancements. As an example, when the Seychelles launched the first sovereign blue bond in 2018 for marine and fisheries projects, the transaction was supported by a partial guarantee from the World Bank and a concessional loan from the Global Environment Facility, which partially covers interest payments for the bond. Another area we've seen innovation recently is in, in debt-for-nature swaps, which are agreements between creditors and a debtor government that a portion of interest or principal payments on existing debt is redirected to funding climate or natural capital initiatives. And we've already seen such transactions for, for countries including Belize, Barbados, Ecuador, and Gabon. And Matt, you referred just now to several examples of sustainable finance. Can you tell us what you're seeing in terms of issuance activity in emerging markets? And could COP actually support issuance in any way? Well, emerging market issuers continue to represent a relatively small share of the labeled sustainable bond market. But we expect these volumes will grow over time, given the substantial sustainable development financing needs in these countries that we've already talked about today. Uh, during the lead up to COP28, for example, we've seen very strong growth in label bond issuance from, from issuers based in the Middle East. Uh, sustainable bond volumes more than doubled the $9 billion that was issued throughout all of 2022 to around $21 billion for just the first nine months of 2023 alone. In the UAE specifically, we've seen sustainable bond issuers include the UAE government itself, which submitted a strengthened nationally determined contribution in July 2023 as well as utilities such as Mazdar, uh, which is the Abu Dhabi Future Energy Company. As and Rebecca's already talked about some of the policy priorities at COP, including the conclusion of the first global stock take, opera operationalizing the loss and damage fund, advancing global energy transition, and catalyzing climate finance, all of these efforts should ultimately support continued sustainable bond issuance growth. And in particular, we expect that these priorities are going to affect uh, issuance for, for sovereign issuers, transition finance, adaptation projects, and emerging market issuers, uh, all of which can receive a boost uh, from, from the COP initiatives. Thank you very much to Matt and Rebecca for their insights into what we should be watching for at COP from an emerging markets perspective. And thank you also to our listeners for joining us. If you have any comments or any suggestions for future episodes, please do feel free to email us at empodcast at moody's.com.
Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts. 